This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at WisdomTree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, who's also a Senior Economist for WisdomTree. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. The discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products, and the views are guests of their own and not those of, of WisdomTree's affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show. We're going to be talking uh, with some economists about what they're seeing in the economy and the markets. Uh, but Professor, we're going to kick off with you, some of your latest thoughts on, on the markets and, and what you're seeing. Well, the big news this week, I think, is the, the surge in yields, um, uh, the 10-year and uh, even the uh, the TIPS yield. The TIPS yield uh, is uh, just under 2%, which is the highest we've seen in several decades. Um uh, you know, this was a yield that was minus one and a half percent three years ago. So, uh, there has been a big increase in, in that yield. Um, now one should understand people talk about what competition there is. Uh, so we have a, a say a 2% tips yield, uh, with a 20 PE in the stock market. That's a 5% real yield on stock. So uh, the equity premium right now is 3%, which is, pretty much what the historical equity premium has been. If you go back 220 years um, with uh, stocks being at a, a higher 6.7%, bonds being, you know, three to three and a half percent. So we're pretty much on the average, but it has, it certainly has shrunk from what it was before. I mean, um, uh, returning more to the average of what, equity risk premiums that we've seen in 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 the past um the data continues strong i mean retail sales were strong a little dip in the home buying sentiment um uh the fomc minutes didn't really elaborate much more than what powell talked about now there's not much on the docket next week except powell's talk um uh in jackson hole my expectation is not going to be all that much different from what he said after the last FOMC meeting. I mean, he's going to basically say there's still inflation, the economy is strong, um, and some more tightening uh, may be necessary. However, we are very data dependent. Um, we are still more than a month away from the FOMC meeting on September 20th. And uh, you know, we'll be looking at at um, at all the indicators. So you can interpret it. Maybe he will be mildly hawkish. But my feeling is, is that he won't take a big position one way or the other, given the big lead time and, and the commitment to being data dependent. So uh, I'm not expecting fireworks from uh, Jackson Hole, although we'll we'll see. Certainly there's no data except the strong, stronger GDP data. Particularly, we have the uh, you know the uh, 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 the Atlanta Fed, which is double everyone else, like five percent plus GDP. Well, Goldman Sachs and others are two and a half for this particular quarter. By the way, there's a little some of the details look like there might be a few ticks downward revision of that second quarter GDP. I think what's really going on here. Um, last year, we added five million new jobs. And we had GDP growth of less than 1%. This year, we're, we're running at half that rate, and we have GDP growth between 2 and 3%. That's three times as much. And what causes this difference? A huge snapback in productivity from the worst in 75 years to above normal and, and this. And we, we I, 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 I said that there might be a snapback in productivity. We didn't see it much right at the beginning, but we do see it now. That is good for profits, good for inflation, good for the economy, uh, good for real wages. Uh, so GDP could could be strong without providing additional in, inflationary pressures if it is due to a productivity snapback. And that's what we did. Now, how long that will last, I don't know. 
Um, uh, clearly, real yields going to two percent show that they think the economy is going to stay stronger than we've had in the past for a while. That might be AI optimism or a productivity increase uh, from whatever source into the future. But as you know, I expect now interest rates to remain particularly firm for a long time. Um, and uh, as as the recession or near-term recession scenario gets taken off the table, what we have here uh, is the uh, long-duration assets such as tech um, suffering the most, shorter-duration assets less. Every The stock market is going a mild sinking spell with this higher yields, but clearly tech is being most affected as it should be. Uh, with value stocks holding out much better as the recession scenario is um, is actually uh, is actually limited. Um, so you know, basically, I would say I'm not, you know, un, not nothing has changed my mind. I expect the rates to stay high for quite a while. I expect that uh, the market at 20 PE is right, but. You know, how will the momentum return again? Normally, by the way, when we have a surge and then a rate rise, it settles back five to 10 percent. And then we have another surge to try to hit that high. It's it's hard to say when that'll come. But certainly I don't see anything threatening on the market um, that would erase more than maybe, uh, you know, five, six percent from this level. Um, which would keep it out of correction mode. When, when you talk about rates staying high, um, are you talking the longer end, the short end, both? I, I'm curious if you if there's a level of the tips bonds where you say they become a screaming bargain. I, I, we, I when in some of your old views, I was thinking two percent was getting close to that type of level. But I'm curious if yeah, you said, I mean, I, I do think two percent is uh, on the tips is a is a real bargain. Um, 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 you know, it, it depends on a productivity growth lasting. And so if we see any faltering of that growth, and uh, I still think there's two-sided risks uh, that the, 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 the problem, you will see that coming down. So I can't blame anyone now for going in on their bonds on a, on a 2% tips. Uh, I don't see it going much higher. Um, so I, I, you know, I think we're near the high. I mean, I don't see two and a half percent. I mean, one quarter of fast growth, a third quarter is, uh, it, it should not give a 10 year tips, a, a surge of 30, 40 basis points. Um, but I think, um, there's positioning, there's, there's things going on in Japan. There's a couple of other mine, uh, things that, uh, relate to supply of bonds that are kind of pushing it down. So yeah, I actually do think. 1.92%. If you're going to go into those bonds, um, I think that that's going to be uh, something that um, um, uh, looks good. You also have to you know, realize that um, it gets corrected at the official CPI rate, not at the actual CPI rate. Um, so the question is how much follow through the inflation on the rental side actually will have. By the way, mortgages, 30-year fixed, are now going in the marketplace for 7.6. We might see seven and three quarters soon. I can't believe that won't uh, slow down housing. Um, but again, demand is strong. That's the inflation hedge. Um, and um, people are going to struggle to meet that. But um, that certainly is going to put a dent in any upward surge, I think, in the housing industry and slow things down in third and fourth quarter. I'm looking forward to next, as we go to next week, we've got the last big tech stock, NVIDIA reporting earnings. It's the, the highest it, multiple stock. Blow out. I mean, I think expectations are so high that if there's any chink in that armor, uh, that might be the correction in the um, tech that, uh, uh, that many people had been anticipating. Um, um, so uh, a lot of good news is being written into that. What is it selling for, uh, uh, 30, uh, 30 times, uh, revenues, I think, or, or, or something right like that. Right between that, there was 40 trailing and 25 times forward with some of the multiples we were looking at when we did a study on companies that got to this level 
and it might keep going in the short term, um, but after a year, it becomes very tough once they become the highest multiple stock. So there's definitely yeah, a lot of risk. And, that, and, and, a, and, and a huge cap stock at that, which, you know, uh, gets over-owned by all the people playing the momentum. Yep, NVIDIA will be important. Well, Professor, thanks for kicking us off to start the show. Thank you very much, Jeremy. See you next week. We're going to turn over our conversation to two quite interesting guests. We got Peter Bookfar, who's been a friend of the program, has been on before as chief investment officer at Bleakley Advisory Group, CNBC contributor, author of the book report. He often writes about what, what I consider like an alt employment indicator. And we've got the chief economist from Zip Recruiter, Julia Pollack, who, who's the chief economist at Zip Recruiter. We could get to talk about all the data that they have on the economy. Julia, Peter, welcome to Behind the Markets. Well, well, thanks for both of you for joining us. Um, I think you we are yeah, we're we're getting off mute there, um, Peter. Maybe just to touch on you, you follow probably the markets uh, as as much as anybody. Uh, just a quick comment on anything you heard from the professor as you think about top down, your assessment of what's going on here. Any anything you'd add to the what the professor kicked us off with? Yeah, I think the economy is is, is much more nuanced uh, and and pockets of strength, but. Uh, pockets of weakness as well. Uh, pockets of strength being uh, the higher end consumer that um, continues to travel and go out to dinner and um, on spend money on services. Uh, but lower to middle income consumers seem to be uh, prioritizing spend. And with those two words, I heard a lot in earnings calls from Ross Stores and Walmart and Target uh, and TJ Maxx. Uh, and even Walmart saying that we're getting new customers from all demographics. Uh, if you look at the manufacturing sector, it's been clearly in a recession now for multiple quarters. If you look at housing, housing's been a tale of two worlds. Uh, the home building sector has been doing pretty well because obviously they're filling the vacuum of existing home sales, but existing home sales in within the Mortgage Bankers Association data, uh, that index is near the lowest level since 1995 in terms of the pace of transactions with existing homes. And regardless of the reason, if there are less housing transactions, there's less paint being bought, there's less carpet being bought, uh, less movers are getting hired, and that has its own economic implications. Uh, with respect to the labor market, you know, I'll rely on Julia, and I, I heavily rely on uh, the ZipRecruiter quarterly uh, earnings calls, uh, because I think Ian Siegel is, is rather straightforward in what he sees in the business. Uh, in fact, to the point where I think what Ian has talked about in his last couple of quarters about the slowdown in the pace of what they're seeing uh, will end up being the correct pulse on the state of the labor market. And that when all said and done in terms of the BLS data is a lot of these birth death model job ads are going to get revised away. And that Ian talking about a slowdown in, in hiring back in January is going to be uh more accurate than what the BLS has said. So I think net-net, the economy is very much a mixed bag, but very fragile. And I want to emphasize here that we're only sort of in the, in the first couple of innings of having not just the U.S. economy, but the global economy absorbing, absorbing a much higher interest rate environment. And I need to emphasize that when you have 15 years of extraordinarily low interest rates, and then you go vertical within 18 months, not everyone gets affected all at once. This is a process into what Jeremy talked about uh, having rates higher for longer, which I agree, is that this is a progression of events that impacts more and more businesses, more and more households in terms of adjusting to that higher rate environment. Because if my loan doesn't come due until December of this year, uh, I haven't gotten impacted yet. But that train's still coming towards me, and I'm either going to have to stump up with more equity, I'm just going to have to eat much higher interest expense, or I'm going to have to hand back the keys if I'm commercial real estate uh, back to the banks. Uh, so this is an ongoing, what I call a silent killer, death by a thousand cuts situation as we adjust to this higher rate environment because of the amount of debt that we have at the, both the business level um, now, the household level is more insulated in the sense that because of the prevalence of 30-year mortgage rates, 
they're definitely more insulated outside of credit card rates and so on. But there's also one last thing, and I'll pass it back to you, is what economic activity doesn't happen because of the current interest rate environment? And I'll, I'll specify multifamily. Let's take that for example, where there's a lot of supply currently being constructed, but there's a shrinkage of new projects getting started because numbers just don't pencil out anymore. So that's construction that's not going to happen. And there's going to be a lot of other things that won't happen because the cost of capital is at such a level that projects don't make financial sense unless you, unless you have a lot more equity in them. No, that makes a lot of sense. You always wonder, you know, just where who's feeling the the pain of these higher rates because the economy keeps chugging along. But Julia, I want I want to get your sense as as we talk about ZipRecruiter having all these unique insights from your perspective. Um, share what your your outlook is for the economy and what you're seeing on on your platform a little bit. Sure. Uh, so I, you know, I think all of the data sources coming in at the moment are, are very much a mixed bag. And even within the Bureau of Labor Statistics' surveys, the labor market indicators are a mixed bag. Take job openings, for example. It's the one that, that our industry, I think, is compared against most frequently. Uh, but job openings are the glaring sort of exception in the picture right now. Uh, they are higher in 100% of states than they were before the pandemic. They're up 38% compared to the pre-pandemic level. But the unemployment rate is only better in 76% of states, and layoffs are only lower uh, in, in about the same number. Quits are only higher in just over half of states, and, and hires are only better in 50% of states. Hires are lower than they were uh, before the pandemic in 50% of states. And so you have sort of a strange situation where on the one hand, you have some indicators that, that seem extremely bullish, and others, uh, mostly those based on the direction of change, uh, those indicators in the conference board's leading economic index, for example, uh, that, that are blaring red <laughs> and saying that, that we are um, in, in recessionary territory. Uh, that index, you know, the data just came out and, and uh, it fell again in July. Um, and, uh, you know, other other uh, recent studies, Challenger Gray data on hiring plans says that companies are reducing their hiring plans 82%. So the data is all over the board. Um, what do I think is happening here? Well, I think there's a, a big uh, uh, difference between the levels of, of all of these labor market indicators and the direction in which we're heading. And uh, almost every indicator, employment levels, the unemployment rate, uh, wage growth are extremely strong, but the direction of change is very sharply negative. And the question is how far we'll go. We're, we're kind of at an interesting tipping point where, um, you know, from adding 2 million jobs a quarter in mid 2021, we're now back to adding you know, 700,000 700, a quarter. That's still well above the pre-pandemic level of 500,000 a quarter. The question is how far back the pendulum will swing, whether we'll just get to a sustainable pre-pandemic style uh, level of activity or whether things will slow further. Online job postings are all the way back to their pre-pandemic trend in our data. So we have sort of a healthy 2018, 2019 type level of hiring activity taking place right now. Uh, but, but we see you know, th th that hasn't stabilized yet. There, there still appears to be uh, a pullback taking place when companies uh, consider how many uh, employees to add. And I think that's directly related to the fact that you know, real gross private Domestic, uh, real gross domestic investment has fallen now since the first quarter of 2022. Uh, and that is directly tied to the, the Fed's interest rate hikes. Ever since the Fed started raising those rates, investment has fallen. And uh, it's in real terms. And it's clear why that's happening. It's exactly what Peter said, that companies want to invest. They want to open new locations. They want new equipment. They want new trucks. Uh, but the investment doesn't pencil out at these high interest rates. And so they are taking a wait-and-see approach. Um, hiring is still 
strong now. Uh, one, because there were all those pandemic backlogs. Two, because there is a shift of activity, say, from uh, new home purchases and construction to multifamily construction. And, and so you're, you're seeing sort of um, offsetting gains that for now are perfectly offsetting or, or even more than offsetting the pockets of weakness uh, on the aggregate level. And then you have a lot of inflationary spending going on, too. Right. So construction usually sheds jobs in this kind of interest rate environment. But we're seeing record high manufacturing construction, largely funded by the federal government. And so we're not done. We may have restrictive monetary policy, but we have highly, highly stimulative fiscal policy still. Um, So that's the sort of puzzling picture I I see right now. when investment pulls back and companies can't open new locations, can't get new trucks, uh, at some point they can no longer add headcount. And, uh, you know, unless, unless I think interest rates do start coming down fairly soon, we, we could see uh, employment growth slow pretty substantially. Peter, the, the last headline when I pull up ZipRecruiter as a stock, and I know this was something you talked about um was you know so it, it, they had warned of softer hiring was sort of the quote from ian siegel i think is is part of your headline is that was that your take from their earnings call is that what you just heard from julia what's what's your sense yeah that, that that's what it seemed to be and and not just this past quarter it's, it's julie correct me if i'm wrong it seemed like it was the third quarter in a row um that they that, that they talked about that and and when you think about a lot of small businesses, small and medium-sized businesses, and I'm going to tie this into the, the credit and the rate story, is those businesses that have loans outstanding, borrowed from the bank, for example, those are typically floating rate loans. So when the Fed started to raise interest rates, they were immediately affected. And you can be sure that small business is not on the phone with Goldman Sachs hedging out their current their their their, their floating rate risk. They're just absorbing it and not expecting and certainly not budgeting a 5.5% Fed funds rate when the Fed just started raising interest rates. So as the year and a half progressed, all of a sudden you're a small, medium-sized business. You're, you're allocating more cash flow to interest expense. Now, this is affecting businesses of all sizes, but I'm just talking about small mm-hmm. companies here that do a lot of the hiring is that all of a sudden you're allocating more cash flow to interest expense. So it gets you to think, okay, um, I need to maybe cut costs elsewhere. I don't want to fire anybody. I just spent the last two years hiring as many people as I could. Maybe just let me slow the pace of hiring. Let me just be more judicious in how I spend my my capital here. And I'm, 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 I'm sensing that that is one of the factors that has resulted in a slowdown in the pace of, of listings um, over the last couple of quarters. Peter, that's exactly right. So not only are small businesses absorbing rising loan costs for their existing loans, but new loan growth is slowing sharply at large and small banks alike. And so uh, while we do have a very high new business applications still, and a lot of people trying to start businesses, um, those new businesses are also struggling to get business loans and to staff up. Um, so I think there's a tremendous pent-up demand for labor in this economy that is purely being held back by these high interest rates, and that has been held back by high interest rates since uh, at least mid-2022. Uh, especially, you know, in, in mid-2022 or, or late mid, late 2022, um, in the conference board's CEO confidence uh, survey, they found that 98% of U.S. CEOs were predicting a recession. And CEOs were, were acting on that prediction. They were very worried about a downturn. They did not want to overhire going into a downturn. Uh, and so we have seen companies be extremely conservative and cautious with their hiring. Uh, they're taking time to replace attrition they're uh, thinking very carefully about adding headcount. Um, 
they're focusing much more on quality and retention of existing employees. We've seen mentions of signing bonuses uh, fall by more than 50% over the past two years in job postings. So that was the big way that companies tried to deal with their labor shortages in 2021. Uh, now they're no longer throwing those out there to the same degree. Uh, but we've seen mentions of uh, health insurance and uh, in, uh, in, um, retirement benefits uh, reach their highest levels ever. And that suggests to me as well that companies are, are really focusing on sort of longer-term retention strategies, on attracting employees they think will be there for the long haul, um, uh, high-quality employees, uh, rather than, you know, simply trying to cast the widest net possible and bring in, you know, any warm body they can find. Uh, so that, that's, that's been a, a very uh, marked shift since, uh, since the pandemic rehiring frenzy that took place in late 2021. Now, one thing um, I'm curious on both both your perspectives on is is how much should the Fed be concerned about wage growth driving inflation? Uh, that's sort of one big macro take. But but also, is there you started off with the jobs openings and jolts data, and is and and the question is there too much? Well, is there slack in the labor force? Is is your data on people looking for jobs? Can you, you talked about pent up demand for labor? Can they hire them? Are there workers to be hired? Um, you know, what's your what's your view on on those culmination of issues? Yeah, so labor force participation has been sort of remarkably strong, given the fact that the exodus of older workers in the start at the start of the pandemic is now proving to have been permanent. Uh, and that's largely because uh, employment rates and participation among prime age workers uh, continues to surprise economists and seems to have no real feeling. Um, there are two factors here. I think there are push factors and pull factors. Uh, so on the one hand, people are being pushed into the market by inflation and by the need to gain extra income. Uh, many, many uh, Americans got those stimulus checks they got higher than replacement wages with their unemployment benefits during the pandemic. They're, they were able to pay down debt. They were able to build up some savings. Their credit scores got a huge boost. They were able to qualify for new car loans uh, at you know, $700, $800 a month. And now, suddenly, they're realizing, oh, man, uh, the cost of a new car is very high when you have an $800 car loan and $200 uh, uh, insurance payment. And they're starting to, to have a few uh, regrets as uh, credit card interest rates are hitting record highs and subprime auto loan interest rates are hitting record highs. So you are seeing delinquencies pick up there. And uh, and many people are, are coming into the market to try to pick up a second job or to, uh, to try to find a job that, that offers higher wages so they can uh, you know, make ends meet. There's also a pull factor uh, because there has been such high wage growth, especially at the low end of the, uh, of the income distribution um, and in those face-to-face -face, uh, services that cannot be performed remotely. Uh, many people are being drawn off the sidelines and uh, you know, especially mothers uh, who uh, face a trade-off between staying at home and uh, but saving on childcare, or going into the market and working, and then spending most of their disposable income on childcare? Uh, that calculation tips uh, now as childcare services recover and become more accessible, and as uh, wages grow, especially in these uh, female majority service industries. So we're seeing very high engagement among job seekers. We're seeing a lot of job search activity, and that's why our customers say they are finding it e easier to, to find candidates and to find quality candidates. Peter, what's your view on the slack and in inflation? Well, with inflation, in inflation's always – the question of, of do we get inflation is always really on the good side. Uh, the extent of the inflation, because services inflation is always and everywhere. Uh, in, in, in the 20 years leading into COVID, services inflation ex-energy averaged 2.8% a year. There was no such thing 
as transitory services inflation for reasons we know, housing, education, uh, healthcare, concert tickets, sporting events, and so on. Uh, goods prices, core goods prices, in the 20 years leading to COVID averaged zero. So where food and energy went, you mix that in, you get, that's how you mathematically got to your, you know, one to 2%-ish uh, inflation trend. And then obviously with post-COVID, you have this acceleration in goods prices. So the question with inflation on whether we go back to the one to 2% trend or we're sort of in this higher level world, uh, I'm, in, I'm a believer that we're gonna settle out at like three to 4% and that the US, the tips market which at least five years out is pricing in about a 225, 230 implied inflation break even is going to be wrong. And that's because uh, wage growth. Now, I'm not necessarily a believer in wage price spirals. It's more like wage growth follows inflation, but sticky wages do incentivize a company to raise prices to offset that. Uh, UPS is probably going to raise prices to offset their jump in labor costs. So they're not going to have enough other levers to pull in if they want to maintain a certain level of profit margin. So there is some uh, flow through, maybe spiral is, I'm trying to think of a different word of maybe like a, a slower pace of, of flow through, but it's still going to be there. And so services inflation, I think, could be that a 2.8% could call three and a half to four. Now, over the next year, we're going to see rent deceleration, no doubt. But getting to my point about little new multifamily construction going on, uh, after that, you're going to see catch up. And I wouldn't be surprised with a, a 7.5% mortgage rate that that multifamily supply is going to get absorbed rather quickly because people can't afford to buy a new home. Now, on the goods side, the question is, you know, a lot of the, the structural forces that kept inflation on the good side in check. Now, technology is always a deflationary force. So I'm going to put that aside. Since the history of mankind, technology has been a deflationary force, and it will continue to be. But some of the other factors that helped to suppress goods price inflation pre-COVID of, of cheap labor out of China, just-in-time inventory and how efficient that was, low transportation costs. Well, some of that is not going to come back for a while. Um, we don't have cheap labor out of China. And while uh, companies are trying to uh, diversify and go to Vietnam and uh, go to Indonesia and even go to Mexico, uh, you're still seeing, uh, you're not going to see the same sort of in wage deflation that helped to suppress the price of goods. Uh, Just-in-time inventory to an extent is, is gone away as, as, as companies are not gonna repeat the, the, the mistake of, 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 of having to rely on a global supply chain that can disrupt it uh, with the pandemic. So that leads to um, more working capital needs, less cash flows, and unlikely higher prices. Uh, so I think those are some of the factors that are gonna lead to higher goods prices. And that's talking about transportation. Well, we're already seeing, we've obviously seen a spike in transportation costs and a collapse, and we're already beginning to see signs that uh, prices are picking up again. I mean, losing yellow freight and it's 30,000 people, well, we're already seeing an uptick in, in, in spot rates within um, in trucking. And also, every person that, that was able to breathe wanted to be in the trucking business when uh, prices went through the roof they're now all going out of business too. So you're seeing a uh, bottoming in the Baltic dry index. You're seeing a, uh, what I, a bottoming in spot rates within trucking. Uh, we're even seeing a bottoming in freight. If you look at the World Container Index, uh, Shanghai to LA index, it's still very low off its highs, but it's beginning to curl up. So um, I think there's just some structural things that are gonna lead to a stickier, higher inflation. We're not, I don't think we're going back to 7%, 8%, 9% inflation, but three to four, is its own challenge because that means that the Fed is going to be less able to uh, respond to uh, a downturn in the economy. And uh, one last thing is I think energy prices are, are back. I think energy prices go much higher from here. Um, I say that because I'm talking my book because we own an, an energy stocks, but I do think that energy prices go 100 and possibly north of that, that then further complicates this inflation talk. So I think bottom line is expect a lot of inflation volatility in the years to come, not going back so quickly to the sanguine one to 2% inflation trend pre-COVID. And there's one thing to suppress the rate of inflation via monetary policy. It's another thing to keep inflation low after getting there. 
So there are a couple of reasons why I don't think the current level of wage growth is uh, inflationary. And one reason is that since the start of the pandemic, uh, real wage growth has actually been slower than it was in the years before the pandemic. Uh, so since the start of the pandemic, you know, consumer price index has risen 17.4%. Average weekly earnings have only risen 17.8%. Uh, between 2013 and 2019, wages were growing about 1.5% faster than inflation each year to account for productivity growth. And so real wages are maybe 4 or 5% below their pre-pandemic trend, at the average at least. Obviously, for uh, that's not the case for, for production and non-supervisory workers and for um, uh, so the lowest wage workers. Uh, and, it, you know, it's not tr the case in leisure and hospitality where uh, production and non-supervisory workers have actually uh, had their wages grow 10 percent faster than inflation. So, yes, I think there are, it, it, the story differs by industries. Um, but overall, you know, at the median, uh, wages have only grown just about as fast as inflation. And so workers have not really become more expensive in real terms. Uh, the other issue is while Year-over-year uh, -year wage growth still looks pretty strong at 4.4 percent. Um, average weekly earnings have only grown 3.5 percent over the year because the work week has shrunk. Um, employers are no longer uh, relying so much on on overtime hours as they staff up and spread the hours around. And so um, I think people's consumption depends more on how much they're making in a week or a month than how much they're making per hour. And so I don't see that being uh, being inflationary. That's kind of right in line with with where uh, where we should be. Um, and if you look at overall aggregate labor market income, that's now only growing about as fast as it was before the pandemic. So I don't think there's you know, so much labor market income being pumped into the economy anymore that it's going to fuel uh, inflationary levels of of, of uh, consumption. Well, I I do want to get to one specific thing on about the data and, and what you guys see versus what, what's the official data, as well as how sort of the work from home type uh, environment impacts what you see in sort of jobs openings, jobs postings. Uh, when people talk about the wages impact on inflation and the slack issue, people say, is the jolts data symbolic of the right true number of job openings or people posting things in multiple places? What is What does your data say on this? Is the jolts data give us the right indication of slack? So JOLT data and our ZipRecruiter data uh, definitely have uh, diverged in uh, recent years. And um, I, I think that may be because uh, it's very hard to measure job openings. So when a, an HR contact, a payroll contact uh, of the Bureau of Labor Statistics at some business opens that email and is asked to fill out that survey, what exactly do they do? Uh, the BLS has a very specific definition of job openings. They want to know, does your company have an opening that can be filled within the next 30 days that's budgeted, et cetera, et cetera. But typically, especially in a larger organization, there's no single person who knows. They, you know, I, I assume that the contact opens their company ATS or their company's HR platform and looks at just the number of postings. And the number of postings doesn't only reflect the number of actual vacancies, it reflects recruitment intensity. And in a tighter labor market, companies post jobs multiple times in multiple ways to try to increase engagement on their job postings and try to find candidates wherever they are. So a company might post a job uh, with multiple different titles, even though it's one vacancy. They might post a job in multiple different places, especially if it's a remote job, to try to find candidates, to find talent uh, across the country. Uh, so I think, yes, during the uh, pandemic reopening, that enormous increase in openings likely overstated the actual number of vacancies. And I think some of that uh, still exists now. Um, even just over time, also historically, we've seen this strange divergence between job openings and every other labor market measure, between openings and hires, quits, et cetera. Uh, all those other measures are highly correlated and move together in tandem. Openings have gone up into space. And I think that is largely a symptom of the, the movement of job search online. 
and the use of, of tools like ZipRecruiter, where companies can do exactly that and post jobs multiple times, multiple ways to maximize their chance of success. And Peter, how do you use these alternative, you, you do a lot in your book report, Daily Note, which I'm a subscriber to and, and, and love reading. Um, you try to get these alternative sources by going to things like earnings calls and get that. But how, how do you look at these alternative data sources and, and what they're telling you here? Well, I, I find them extraordinarily helpful, uh, particularly when the alternative is, is analyzing ELS data, for example, where uh, a number may get revised a couple of times. I mean, it, it's Julie can give an opinion on this. It, it's amazing the obsession with the monthly BLS number because it gets revised once, it gets revised twice, and then a year later it gets revised a third time. And sometimes there's a wide discrepancy between the final revision and that initial print that all its market participants uh, trade off at uh, 8.30 on that Friday. Uh, so hearing directly from companies, sort of hearing what their current ear to the ground is telling them, uh, to me is, is, is a helpful compliment. Now, I, now, I pay attention to all these economic numbers that are produced. Every, I think you have to, but I think complementing that with a lot of the, the anecdotes from, from companies uh, is really important. Now, some CEOs will spin their current business condition one way, and a, another CEO with the same exact business conditions will spin it the other way. So you have to have sort of a discriminating eye and ear in listening to what they have to say. But I just think that it, it, it's very helpful in, in filling in sort of the economic gaps in terms of what they're seeing in, in the pace of, 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 of sales and the type of customer and, and what, what their this or that is. Uh, and, and I just find it very helpful. Right. Uh, private sector companies also have a real interest in uh, you know, adjusting for any uh, change in the data that's introduced by, by technological change, right? So we um, uh, try to de-dupe job postings and count just unique jobs whereas perhaps the BLS may not be going through a similar exercise and really drilling down with each contact. Are these all unique, separate jobs? Um, you know, how, how many humans do you actually expect will fill these positions? Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, think, I think private sector companies, because they, uh, they predict and project uh, revenue and earnings down to the cent, <laughs> they do this very, very precise, uh, exercise, and they are held to account if they get it wrong. Uh, they do have more of an incentive to try to understand exactly what's happening and why. So if our people want to follow some of these metrics, tell tell our listeners a little bit about what you're publishing, how you look at things, where they can find your types of indicators uh, at ZipRecruiter. Sure. So we're actually building a brand new ZipRecruiter economic research website that is due to launch in September, and that will include a ZipRecruiter job postings index. And so you'll be able to see our real-time data on job postings, uh, not just overall, but also by industry. So watch this space. Uh, in the meantime, our, our research is mostly on the ZipRecruiter blog, and we publish a quarterly job seeker confidence index and a quarterly survey of new hires in which we ask newly hired Americans what they got, whether they got a job, a wage increase when they switched jobs, whether they are moving from an in-person job to a remote job or vice versa, uh, whether they gained any new benefits, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So we, we try to see whether people are, are getting good jobs, whether they're getting jobs for which they are adequately qualified or overqualified or underqualified, uh, whether they're getting the number of hours they want, uh, all of those kinds of measures. And, and what about this question about are people responding to surveys? Do you see any evidence of that? Like are companies like I, I've seen some now I'm forgetting which survey that had such a dreadful reporting that people were really questioning it. But are people sure. are the. That was that was the Bureau of Labor Statistics' job openings and labor turnover survey, right? So the the, the, uh, the yeah the response rate there plummeted into the 30s or something. Right. So this is where you're and and for you, do you find the individuals are responding much better? Um. Well, n no, 
I think I think response rates have fallen sort of across the board in all surveys. Uh, people have sort of cognitive overload. Their yeah. inboxes are full to bursting. Uh, there's also a decline in trust. People don't want to give their information to a stranger. Uh, so that's that's a, a very widespread issue. Um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics you know, did respond to that decline in response rate by expanding the sample size. So they tried to over uh, to, to sort of offset the the effect there. Um, and, and they do now say that response rates have recovered somewhat. Um, so you know, I'm, I'm not sure how how large an issue that was. Um, but there are reasons to believe that it could have introduced bias. You know, if um, the only remaining contacts who are filling out the survey are the ones that the companies that have survived and that are still hiring, um, whereas you, you've lost contact with companies because that HR person was laid off. And of course, whenever layoffs take place, they do disproportionately affect people in support functions like HR and talent acquisition. Uh, well, you know, then you may you may have a problem. You may be sort of not capturing the weakest companies. It is quite interesting. I mean, Peter China gets a hard time about their data quality, but it seems like data quality is an issue everywhere. Uh, youth unemployment no longer going to get reported in China because the numbers are too high. Um, but Peter, let, let's come back to sort of market views. Uh, you talked a little bit about energy as one of your views. Um, is is that one of your highest conviction views? Anything you want to say about why you think the the hundred dollar oil might be possible? So we, we've um, we've been bullish on energy since uh, October 2002, right before Pfizer had their uh, COVID efficacy drug news. Not that we had any idea of what they were going to say, but just on hopes that between Moderna, Pfizer, and others that we were going to get something good. I think now it really comes down to a world that's still uh, using oil in high demand. Uh, demand levels are at a record. And we've, we're just not finding enough uh, when you look out over the next three, five, ten years. And whether that's because of political reasons that's, that's um, disincentivizing enough drilling uh, or whatever, there's not going to be enough that's going to be pumped relative to the, uh, the daily demand. And I think that the clearing price is going to have to be higher than it is now in order to incentivize more production. And uh, when you look at Oil prices at $81 for one of the biggest consumers is China. And interestingly, with all the uh, the daily uh, worries and bashing of China, uh, their oil demand is is, is getting back to uh, where it's exceeded a record high. So I think that that trade is still uh, has still has some left in it. Uh, I think if oil prices got to north of 100, which I think it could. I mean, keep in mind, oil was $150 the peak in 08. I'm not saying it goes back there, but you know, inflation adjusts that. And oil prices are actually relatively low. Uh, certainly, energy intensity for the U.S. economy is relatively low. But consumers sometimes also uh, react psychologically, and they go past their gas station and they see it's four dollars a gallon, or more if you're in Oakland, Julius in California. Um, you know, there there is a psychological uh, impulse that gets affected by a rise in gasoline prices. So uh, that oil is still at eighty-one dollars in light of this dramatic rise in interest rates. And actually, the rise in interest rates is actually helping oil stay higher because it's costing more to buy and store barrels. Uh, so that, that that's also, well, that's actually helped to suppress the price of oil. But um, even with that, oil prices remain rather sticky here. And I expect them to go higher. And I think the oil stocks are still relatively attractive. I think that they offer definitely a unique hedge if you think that's going to create inflation and create more pain in the bond market. Uh, we've been talking about that. I, I also think those are some of the cheaper stocks in the market. Um, it sounds like you like tips because inflation is going to be high and the tips market is not pricing it. How do you think about that stock bond mix and as you think about managing portfolios? Are you nervous about stocks here? Do you, what's, what's your general take? I, 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 I am nervous of, of parts of the, of the stock market because of the, the, the valuations and combined with rising interest rates and, and declining earnings. Uh, you know, yeah, I know we can take out energy, their Q2 earnings decline and, and say earnings are okay, but earnings are just really at best flatlining and at worst declining. So you combine that with high rates and a very lofty multiple and uh, many stocks I don't find attractive. On the flip side, there are other stocks that have been left for dead, value-type stocks that 
uh, don't have the word NVIDIA in their name or don't necessarily talk about AI in their conference calls, uh, ha- you, you need to differentiate when you talk about the, the stock market because it hasn't been homogeneous. And I still think that markets overseas, which have dramatically underperformed U.S. stocks over the past 10 plus years, uh, are, are, are relatively attractive compared to the U.S. Yeah, we, I, I, you know, I share a lot of those views. What about on China? Is China is something that is touchable, untouchable? As you think about the risks that come from China uniquely for this semiconductor space and just general geopolitical side, any any views on that? Well, on the geopolitical side, it's just virtually impossible to try to game that out. And on one hand, you can say, well, if you can't game it out, then it's uninvestable. On the other hand, you want to believe that 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 G, for example, is going to be somewhat practical, and that is is taking a military stance with Taiwan worth basically blowing up his economy. And I think he's going to be more practical than that. Uh, I think the world needs a healthy, growing economy in China. Uh, there's no doubt that they're dealing with some major major issues with the unwind of a massive residential property bubble, uh, major debt problems at the local government level. Uh, a manufacturing sector that is still a powerhouse, but suffering from soft end demand around the world. So they have their share of problems, just as uh, a lot of us have problems. But um, I do think that the the uh, the Chinese consumer is going to be over the next five to ten years a major driver of economic activity. Uh, the growing middle class. I mean, the per capita income in China is only about twelve to thirteen thousand. That is only going to go much higher over the coming decades. So a growing middle class in China, a growing middle class in India, a growing middle class in Indonesia, in Vietnam. To me, the Asian economic region is gonna be the most exciting and it's gonna see the best growth once we get past the next year or two and China finally hopefully cleanses its economy of a lot of its debt and and excesses. Gotta wrap, but this has been such a fun conversation. Julia Polak, Chief Economist, Zip Recruiter, Peter Bookvar, The Book Report, CIO of Bleakly Advisory. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 132. Thanks for this great talk on alt employment indicators. This was a fun conversation, guys. Uh, have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.